0: Welcome to the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars, the nation's key nonpartisan policy forum for tackling global issues through independent
1: research, open dialogue, and informing actionable ideas for the policy community. This is a Wilson Center special event hosted by our experts and scholars. Be sure to check out our other media, videos, audio, and podcasts at wilsoncenter.org.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wilson Center, where we, uh, in the words of our congressional charter, strengthen the fruitful relation between the world of learning and the world of public affairs. I'm Mark Green, President and CEO of the Center, and we're here for the second in our series, Hindsight Up Front, Lessons and Implications of the Withdrawal from Afghanistan. In our first session a couple of weeks back, we heard from former General David Petraeus and the U.K. Sir John Scarlett, former leader of British Secret Intelligence Services. Today, we get a chance to talk with retired Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. H.R. was America's 26th national security advisor, a post he assumed after 34 years as a commissioned officer in the U.S. Army. He's a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. His most recent book, Battlegrounds, The Fight to Defend the Free World, is truly a must read for students of American leadership and American foreign policy. HR, uh, thanks for joining us. I, I do appreciate it very much.
1: Hey, Mark, it's great to be with you. And I'll tell you, it was great to serve with you a few years ago and, and you just, you did a great job and, and you're a wonderful colleague. It's great great to be back with you.
0: Well, that you're, you're, you're very kind. Uh, well, today's topic is a challenging one for all of us, I, I think. You know, um, back in 2020, Congress chartered a nonpartisan panel of experts called the Afghanistan Study Group. Its final report was called A Pathway for Peace. In that report, HR, uh, it said, we have an interest in Afghanistan not becoming a safe haven for terrorists who can threaten us. We have an interest in a stable Afghanistan that is not a threat to its region. And we have an interest in an Afghanistan that respects human rights. That sound about right.
1: That does sound exactly right, and it sounds very similar to the review that that we were part of, that resulted in this in a very sound, I believe, and sustainable South Asia strategy in August 2017. Sadly, one that was abandoned uh, about a year and a half later.
0: Uh, so, I guess the, the the question is, you know, at at one point, the U.S. had something like uh, what 110,000 troops there. By 2021, before President Biden ever took office, that number was down to about 2,500. Of course, that also brought with it about 7,000 allied troops and forces. Was that number sufficient to pursue those interests, do you think?
1: Well, it it, it depends, Mark, because, you know, the future course of events in war depends not only what we decide to do, or this precise number of troops we decide to have there. It depends on actions of determined and often, as we see today, brutal enemies, right? And And so this idea that you can have linear progress in war and you can announce years in advance exactly the number of troops you're going to have and what they're going to do and what they're not going to do is actually ridiculous and completely counter to the very nature of war and particularly in particular, war's interactive nature. And so I think what is important is for us to develop strategies that are flexible, uh, but that are sustainable over time. And whether it's 2,500 or 8,500 or or 12,000, you know, Mark, we're we're the United States of America. If we're Ecuador, you know, that might be a stretch, you know, but but right. we could sustain that commitment. And I think what's important about that commitment, Mark, is hey, Afghans were bearing the brunt of that fight, right? We were taking very few casualties, zero over the last year after what I would call the capitulation agreement of 2019, but even the year prior to that. And what Americans, I don't, I don't think you know, really realized is, is how you know how small. Of a contingent we had there and how small an amount of money it cost to sustain that effort and how much burden sharing was occurring with other coalition partners in Afghanistan. Again, with the Afghans bearing the brunt and paying the greatest price for for protecting the freedoms that they've enjoyed since 2001. Freedoms, which as you know, um, are are at risk uh, and actually are being reversed now by the Taliban gains in Afghanistan.
0: Yeah, and you know, actually, you, you got to where I wanted to go. I, I think too much of the American media attention has been on, on that number, whether it be 2,500 or 110,000, right. and really doesn't focus on all that it leveraged. When I look at uh, the coalition partners that were there, and, and quite frankly, the coalition losses that were there, those who put their lives on the line. But more than anything else, uh, Afghan security forces, uh, civilian uh, supporters and all of that. So that 2,500 actually brought with it a, a pretty substantial uh, force.
1: Yeah, Mark, could I, could I just share, like, I think, a, a forgotten part of our history? In 1967 and 1968, Tim Il-sung in North Korea saw American protests about the war in Vietnam. And he sensed American weakness, right? And he said, OK, now's the time. Now's the time for me to start an insurgency in South Korea. He launched 300 attacks in South Korea, over 300, from 1967 to 1968. 15 American soldiers were killed and 65 wounded, along with many other South Koreans. This all happened during the height of the Vietnam War. And we had had tens of thousands of troops in Vietnam at the time. uh, and, And we sustained that effort there. South Korea was far from its success, 67 to 68. It wasn't until economic reforms in the late 70s and, and into the 80s and then political reforms in the 80s that really South Korea took off, right? It began to strengthen as a, as a vibrant democracy and free market economy. So I, I'll tell you, Mark, I, I just think we talked ourselves into defeat in Afghanistan. Uh, and, and we had a sustainable commitment and, and we were engaged in, in, in a righteous, worthwhile mission and as you pointed out at the outset, a mission that was grounded in our interests, right? And I would say, though, the interests of all humanity.
0: Uh, you know, you, you wrote an op-ed just a couple of weeks back in the Wall Street Journal entitled How to, De- How to Avert Disaster in Afghanistan. And you wrote that it should be an American priority to prevent the collapse of the Afghanistan government, to prevent the Taliban and its partners from reestablishing a base to prepare attacks on the U.S. and its allies, and and you laid out some steps that you thought two weeks ago the U.S. Should, should take. Stationing close air assets in Afghanistan and making clear that America will provide air support to Afghan forces. Secondly, ensuring that the Afghan Air Force has contractor maintenance and logistics support based in Afghanistan. And third, providing extensive intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance support you know as we sit here today talking there are reports that 65 percent of afghanistan has been taken over by the taliban so i guess now as we look going forward is it too late for those steps that you laid out
1: well it, it, it might be mark i you know i hope not uh but but i think what's also important is that six cities have just recently fallen as well now how does that happen right the the way that happens is we stop actively targeting the taliban in afghanistan during the, what I would call again, the, the capitulation negotiations that occurred under Ambassador Zal Khalilzad. Um, and then once that capitulation agreement was signed, we were hands off from the Taliban, right? Because we really had to honor that commitment. Now we're honoring you know, the, a peace agreement that actually was, was only gained after concession after concession, no demand of a ceasefire, forcing the Afghan government to release 5,000 of some of the most heinous people on earth who reconstituted the Taliban. The Taliban, and at the same time, continuing mass murder attacks. I mean, Mark. I mean, attacking a maternity hospital, gunning down expectant mothers and infants. Right? Attacking girls' schools, attacking the the American University of Afghanistan, and killing young students who were there to to help uh, to, to develop the skills to to build a better future for generations of Afghans to come. And we did nothing to respond to that. Meanwhile. The Taliban were marshalling for this offensive. They were moving fighters out of Pakistan, out of Iran and other places outside of these cities. And they were developing we- weapons caches outside of these cities. What were we doing? Nothing about it. And now in, in the midst of this offensive, for them to take a city, they have to marshal forces outside of the city. They are extremely vulnerable to firepower, you know, d- delivered by, by, you know, by, by US aircraft and Afghan aircraft tied to, to surveillance and, and intelligence capabilities. Uh, and so should we just not do that? You know, as they, as they commit mass murder in the city squares uh, of the, of these cities, as they, they bulldoze girls' schools, you know, as they, as they eliminate, you know, all of the gains that were made uh, after, the, after the demise of the Taliban regime in 2001, should we just stand idly by? And Mark, what I would say is, where are the people in the Biden administration Who were the authors of the RTP doctrine? Remember that the right to protect. After we stood idly by in a genocidal campaign in Rwanda, what what are they saying now? Because I would imagine they were in on the decision uh, about the complete withdrawal from Afghanistan. Now, uh, maybe then you could say, well, at least they could, uh, you know, comfort themselves with the delusion that the that the Taliban would be more benign, that the Taliban would share power you know that the taliban you know d- did not have uh, did, were we not completely intertwined with al qaeda and other jihadist terrorists we know now I mean, in an incontrovertible way that all of that was false so based on you know, really the recognition that that we had deluded ourselves shouldn't we now reassess our actions and and do what is i think not only in our interest but I, but i think is is morally imperative at this stage right i mean you know, what we have seen in Afghanistan is disappointing in connection with what's gonna happen in connection in connection with our security uh, and, and the strength that jihadist terrorists gain when they when they have a safe haven support base. But what we're actually seeing is the reversal of morality. You know, Mark, how could it be that the U.S. Secretary of State, as the Taliban is launching this offensive, writes a letter to the president of Afghanistan, Ashraf, Ashraf Ghani says, hey, I need you to do more for peace. Yeah, did he write a letter? You know to Haibatullah Akanzata of the Taliban? You know, of course not. And so I, I think that this is an astonishing degree of of what I, I call in in the book, you know, uh, strategic narcissism. You know the tendency to define the world as we would like it to be. Right. and assume that what what we do or decide not to do is decisive toward achieving a favorable outcome. and and this is a this is evidence of our self-referential approach an approach that does not acknowledge that others, like this brutal group, the Taliban, these mass murderers, right, and jihadist terrorists, they actually do have a degree of authorship over the future. And, and, uh, and, and, and I think we're watching the Afghan people pay the price for our self-delusion.
0: Let me ask you this. As someone I, I've never served, never served in uniform, so help me to understand uh, why it is that we can't serve these interests uh, from uh, over the horizon. As, uh, as the current administration has put it. So, so why can't we pull uh, American soldiers and coalitions force, forces out and provide this air support remotely, distantly?
1: Well, because, because counterterrorism operations are, are much more than a targeting exercise, right? One of the fundamental reasons is uh, there are oftentimes, as there are now in Afghanistan, tens of thousands of targets, all of which are trying to avoid being classified as such. And they're doing that by intermingling now with civilian populations in cities. What should we do? Should we just start dropping 500-pound bombs when we identify a you know a Taliban handset uh, and and not have any regard for for uh, for the the, the civilian uh, casualties? I mean that would go against the the, the law of war. It would go against St. Thomas Aquinas's uh, you know, proportionality and, and discrimination aspects of jus and bello uh, theory, uh, just war theory. So, so you know, I, I think that it's a pipe dream, Mark. You have to be on the ground. You have to be able to secure the people, right? Because they are the object of these terrorists. Terrorism is the use of violence against innocents for political purposes. And and if you can't protect the innocents against that violence, guess what? The terrorists can terrorize, and they can accomplish their objectives. And when they're in control of the territory and the populations and resources. We know for a fact, Mark, from recent historical experience, right, heart-rending experience for ourselves, that they become orders of magnitude more dangerous. This isn't a theoretical case, right? This is what happened in 9-11. This is also what happened after the complete withdrawal from Iraq in December 2001, when then-Vice President Biden calls up President Obama and says, thank you for allowing me to end this goddamn war. Now, think about the assumptions that underpin that phrase, right? That sentence. Wars don't end, Mark, when one side disengages, right? I mean, the, the Taliban and Al Qaeda didn't look around and say, oh, the Americans aren't here anymore. I guess we should just stop. And so I think this is really just more evidence, Mark, of our, of our self delusion, this over the horizon idea. We used over the horizon counterterrorism against Al Qaeda after they declared war on us in the 1990s, after the first. Ah, uh, World Trade Center bombing in 1993, the truck bomb attack. After the attacks on our embassies in 1998, what we did, hey, we fired a few cruise missiles right into Sudan and into and into Afghanistan. We called it a day. How did that work out, Mark? Yeah. And then how did it work out in 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 Iraq after the complete withdrawal of forces in December 2011? What happened by 2014 is Al Qaeda 2.0, which morphed into ISIS, as you well know, because you're so much involved in the counter-ISIS campaign. Uh, took over territory the size of Great Britain and became the most destructive terrorist organization in history, right? Condu- planning, conducting, resourcing attacks all across the region and in Europe, shooting down an airliner, inspiring attacks in the United States, recruiting 40,000 fighters, which are where now, Mark? They're spread out you know, all over the world. Uh, and many of them are in Europe in countries that we don't require visas, Uh, From to to travel to the United States, so so we 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 are facing, I think, you know, the growth now of of a of a multi generational problem of jihadist terrorism, and disengaging from it is not the answer because obviously it seeds the initiative and the resources uh, to to our to our determined brutal murderous enemies.
0: You know, um, you're you're touching about something that's near and dear to my heart from from my days at USAID and that's humanity in motion, uh, the refugees and displaced communities. And, uh, you know, we have 83 million around the world before this is happening. I've seen some suggestions we're gonna get about a million and a half refugees uh, heading elsewhere. So uh, looking out ahead as we try to learn lessons from what's going on and and what we can do going forward, what do you see as the impact of uh, the refugee communities once again heading to Pakistan and elsewhere.
1: Well, Mark, as, as you know, right, I mean, what this tells you, what this shows you is that these humanitarian crises, right, which are also political crises and security crises, right, they, you know, they, they don't stay in, in that location. This was one of the assumptions that the Obama administration made about the Syrian civil war, right? They said, okay, well, you know, we, have to, we have to avoid what they perceived as the mistakes of the Bush administration, and they viewed the Middle East mainly as a mess to be avoided under the assumptions that problems that originate in the Middle East, and now we're talking about South Asia, that they stay there. And then also under the assumption that, hey, the situation is there, it's so bad, it just can't get worse. Well, it actually can get a heck of a lot worse. As you know, half of the Syrian population is dead, wounded, or displaced. Half of the population. And that has destabilized not only countries in the region, but it has also destabilized Europe, right, where the influx of those refugees. You know, interacted with nativist parties that led to the greater polarization uh, of, of of societies in, in in Europe and and created opportunities for the Russians. I mean, so these these are interconnected problems, and and so I think that's the biggest lesson. Mark is is disengagement, you know, can actually serve as a catalyst that makes the situation worse. What's going to happen next in Afghanistan? We already know, est- estimates are that they're already up to 1.5 million displaced people already, right? right. And then, you know, if you think about the, the, the crisis uh, from the civil war in Afghanistan in 92 to 96, this will be that crisis on steroids. Why? You know, in, 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 in 2001, the population of Kabul was 500,000. Today, Mark, it's, it's over 5 million. Why did that happen? Because of the accomplishments there. From 2001 to today, right, which which flies in the face of this narrative that we wasted a 20-year effort there. There had been no gains, which we know are completely false. And and where are those people going to go? They're going to go to Central Asian states. They're going to go mainly though to Pakistan, a country that is already destabilized, a country that already can't control its its uh, the federally administered tribal areas and 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 the Baluchistan area, and a country in which, by the way, over 20 U.S. designated terrorist organizations reside. Terrorist organizations that reside in an ecosystem in which they share resources, they share people, they share expertise, and these groups are going to gain even more and more power and influence because they recruit from this displaced population. Right? They they go to families and they say, "Give us your adolescent boys." They indoctrinate them in in essentially jihadist terrorist factories, brainwashing uh, schools, uh, and and then teach them. Uh, they, they foster ignorance, ignorance to foment hatred, and then hatred to justify violence against innocence. And unless you break that cycle, right, we're never going to be able to defeat this jihadist terrorist threat. And so, you know, as you're alluding to, this is, a, this is a, a problem that will not stay in Afghanistan. It won't stay in South Asia. And it's worth pointing out, hey, Pakistan is a country with nuclear weapons. And so the, the possibility of the jihadist terrorists getting a hold of the most destructive weapons on earth is increasing based on instability in Afghanistan. You know, and you for for years. I've heard some people who are just making the case to disengage from Afghanistan. They said, hey, hey the, real, the real priority ought to be Pakistan. Therefore, why don't we just disengage from Afghanistan? What we're seeing now is that security in Pakistan is inexorably connected, right, to what happens in Afghanistan. Uh, and it's time, I think, for a tough stance on the Pakistanis, who, of course, as you know, have, have helped perpetuate the threat from the Taliban and, of course, go after jihadist terrorists only selectively and use other jihadist terrorist groups as an arm of their foreign policy.
0: Let me ask you this. You, you, you touched upon something that, that I think is is worth fleshing out. So first off, in, in, over the last 20 years, we've seen remarkable gains, particularly for girls and women in Afghanistan. You see women serving roles in parliament. You see women serving roles in, in their foreign service. You see will, uh, uh, women participating in in business life in ways that judges, would not have journalists, been uh, lawyers, All right?
1: Over. Absolutely, yeah.
0: All over. On top of that, uh, and this comes from your book Battlegrounds. You point out that over eighty percent of Afghans now have access to mobile phones, and four hundred percent more Afghans reported using the internet. Uh, than they did just 10 years ago. I guess a, a question is uh, the Afghanistan uh, or uh, the Taliban, when they ruled Afghanistan 20 years ago, it was a medieval uh, governing framework. These days, they have a generation who have tasted something in terms of opportunity and liberty. How do we think that plays out? Do, is this going to be um as easy for the Taliban to govern as as they think or as it was 20 years ago
1: no it's not and and, and this is you know, th- you know this there's this narrative right that you know like you know gosh the Taliban that that reflects real Afghanistan and you know we had we had really I, I think uh, uh immoral activity on the part of a lot of U.S. officials actually who over the years I think began to you know like you know how victims sometimes uh you know identify with their abusers Uh, These are people who became advocates for Taliban power sharing. I mean, hey, Mark, what does that look like? Does that look like mass executions in the soccer stadium every other Saturday? Does that mean every other girl's school gets bulldozed? And so we we became actually advocates for the enemies of all humanity, in which it was a very strange reversal of morality. What we're seeing now is, is is the reality of what these people have advocated for within our own government. Uh, over over the years, I think they ought to be held responsible for this in terms of at least the you know at, at least in public opinion and, and be ashamed of themselves, right? And and uh, and so I, I think what what's going to happen is because there have been so many gains that the repression of, of of women, the repression of freedom, the repression of freedom of expression and freedom of the press, which of course you know in Afghanistan it has the freest press of of any country in the region, it's going to be all that more brutal. It means there will be, the people will be more resistant to the imposition of, of this brutal Sharia in Afghanistan, but the Taliban are determined to impose it, right? And uh, and so this is why a very small amount of support by us over the years was sufficient to prevent what we see happening today from happening, right? And and one of the part of the mantra of the of the defeatists in Afghanistan had been, oh, well, you know, there's no military solution. So therefore, what are we doing militarily? We should just be talking to the Taliban. I mean, Mark, this is an astounding degree of incompetence and lack of understanding about the nature of war. War requires the the, the achievement of a sustainable political outcome consistent with what brought you into the fight to begin with. And to achieve that political outcome, you have to integrate what you're doing militarily with what you're trying to achieve politically. We did the opposite. What we were doing militarily was completely disconnected from what we're trying to, to achieve politically. We told the Taliban, "Hey, we're leaving," and then said, "Oh well, let's. We want to negotiate an agreement with you." So it shouldn't come as any surprise that that agreement was based on on, on really on really you know really capitulation on our, our part and and concession after after concession. But Mark, what's astounding is you still hear the same nonsense, utter nonsense today. You know, by leaders of I mean good people, right, who are at the heads of of humanitarian organizations or or international organizations. Well, you know, we just need the international community, you know, to come together and communicate to the Taliban how disappointed we are in their actions. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I mean, I mean, it, it, unless in, unless we back up what we're saying, you know, unless we back up our our crocodile tears, right? You know, for you know for for the Afghan victims uh, w- with action. I mean, it's not going to make a damn bit of difference. And, um, and so I think this is one of, you know, the, I know the premise of, of this series is what can we learn from this? How about taking to heart what the, what, the, what the Prussian philosopher of war said in the early 19th century, that the first duty of the statesman or stateswoman is to not try to turn war into something alien to its nature. Our strategy Our approach to Afghanistan was alien to the very nature of war, that war is an extension of politics. War is profoundly human because people fight for the same reasons Thucydides identified 2,500 years ago fear, honor, and interest. War is uncertain because what we already talked about, right? The interactive nature and the fact that the enemy has a say in the future course of events. And finally, and maybe most importantly in this context, is that war is a contest of wills. And everything we did across those 20 years, just about, with the exception, I would say, of the August 2017 strategy, bolstered the will of our enemies, diminished the will of our friends, and encouraged hedging behavior uh, among, among those who were concerned about the U.S. withdrawal. Because we kept telling grants, hey, we're leaving. We're leaving. Okay, now we're really leaving. What did that do in terms of, uh, of the will of the participants in that conflict? So we consistently, Mark, acted against our interests and our objectives in Afghanistan, with not you know not a twenty-year war, but I would say it was more like a one-year war fought twenty times over with fundamentally flawed and inconsistent strategies.
0: And uh, and that's I think the basic thrust in your book of of how you view our presence in in South Asia. But again, if we have uh, a well-educated, uh, exposed to the outside world generation uh, of afghans particularly girls and women is that something upon which we could build and in terms of where we look right now and we see things rapidly unraveling in so many parts of the country is there an opportunity for the us and the coalition to look now and build upon this and provide some basic level of of uh, of security and, and support and information and is that maybe the best that we can hope for
1: well, if if security is part of it, right? Uh, but but if it's you know if it's messaging, you know if it's communicating our disappointment to the Taliban. I mean, this was a an actual State Department <laughs> statement said that you know we think the Taliban, you know, if they really you know care about their reputation, you know, they'll they'll moderate their behavior. I mean, what what I mean, what astounding self delusion, right? What 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 astounding lack of understanding of our enemy. You know, and Mark, these are again these are lessons we're talking about. Hey, they're not new lessons, man. Right. I mean, you know, this is what Sun Tzu said, right? If if you if you know the enemy, you know, and you know yourself, you're going to win 100 battles, right? If you if if you if you only know one, you're going to you're going to lose half. If you, if you don't know either, you're going to lose for sure. We've never even, I think, tried to communicate to the American people the nature of our enemy. I mean, how many Americans could even name the three main Taliban groups that we fought until Hezb-e Islami Gulbuddin accommodated with the Afghan government? They probably couldn't even name them. How many Americans know who Haibatullah Akanzada is? How many people know what Al-Qaeda says, right, uh, about its relationship with the Taliban? I mean, all you have to do is pick up Al Qaeda's newspaper and they tell you that they're completely intertwined with the Taliban, that they're present and you know, at least from the newspaper, their newspaper, 18 provinces in Afghanistan and have been, you know, for for years. But what do we say? We say you know, we, we conjure up the enemy we would prefer. Right, we say, well, the Taliban, you know, it's really that's really a, a, you know a, an innate part of Afghan culture, which is ahistorical, by the way. Also, right, yeah. I mean, you know, the, the the main Islamic tradition in Afghanistan is Sufism, and 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 uh, and this sort of Salafi jihadist ideology in Afghanistan is, in large measure, the creation, or at least it was amplified by the Mujahideen resistance to to Soviet occupation of Afghanistan in eighty to eighty eight. Uh, and the Saudi funding and proselytization during that period of time, and and the, and the resurrection of kind of a neo-deobandism, uh, a, a kind of a, a vitriolic uh, strain of, uh, of Islam uh, in in Pakistan as well. This is not the na- this is not the natural course in Afghanistan. And so I think there's so much disinformation and superficial understanding, and therefore ignorance of history, and 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 what is even worse, a lot of times the the, the manipulation of history. I mean, Mark, the graveyard of empires. I mean, really? Is that what you're saying? This is, this is inevitable because it, Afghanistan's always been a graveyard of empires. It doesn't even frame the issue properly. We're fighting with Afghans, for Afghans, against this heinous group of terrorists called the Taliban and their allies. That's the appropriate framing. We're not an imperial power occupying Afghanistan. We were enabling the Afghans the ability to get slowly back on the course to recovery, which they did, you know, and to and to and to gradually over time build strength, such they were no longer a ward of the international community. Now, was that going to take time? Heck, yes, it was going to take time. But you know, I, I think what Afghanistan shows us, and this is another important, like headline lesson for your series here, is hey, there are no short-term solutions to long-term problems, right? and And it was a short-term approach to Afghanistan that paradoxically lengthened the war and and complicated the war and made it more costly.
0: You know, um, we refer to this as hindsight up front in part of what because of what you're saying, that this is real time uh, lessons and choices to be made. So something that comes through in in your book in, in general Petraeus made reference to it as well. Uh, it is not taking Afghanistan in isolation. We're talking about the South Asia region. Uh, what should the U.S. do now in the region? Because this isn't something that stays in yeah. Afghanistan, as you point out. What's next? What should we be doing?
1: Well, I think we're, as, as I mentioned, our, our ability to, to help others take the lead against jihadist terrorist organizations, which is what we're doing, Mark. I mean, the whole narrative has been wrong about this, right? I mean, actually, you know, we had this defeatist narrative in Afghanistan. We've been there for 20 years and, you know, end, endless wars. Well, you know, first of all, it's an endless jihad, which against us, right? So it's, it's not an endless war. Uh, and we'd, we'd won, right? We were in an advisory and support, sustainable effort there. Uh, and so the whole narrative about it was wrong. So I think the first thing we have to be able to do is inform the American people better. It should come as no surprise that we inflicted defeat on ourselves after three presidents in a row made no effort to explain to the American people or maybe episodic efforts. I would say that, you know, President Trump's speech in, in uh, August 2017, it's worth going back to, right? Because, I mean, that's, that was the sensible strategy, I, I think. Uh, but, but, you know, uh, it was abandoned, sadly. Uh, and then President Biden doubled down on the same self-delusion of the, of the Trump administration later. Um, and, and, you know, but, but I think American presidents owe the American people really to uh, two two main messages right first is what is at stake? what is at stake in the fight against jihadist terrorist organizations right and the second is is what is a strategy that will deliver a favorable outcome you know, consistent with our vital interests our security at an at, a, at an acceptable cost and, and 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 so I think that's that's really lesson number one what do we do now I, I wrote this a couple of weeks ago about what needs to happen I, I don't think it's going to happen I hope it does happen in terms of the U.S., you know, ensuring that the, that the Kabul government, if it does not fall and that, and that Afghan cities are, are not overrun wholesale and that the Taliban is not able to take control of the entire country, which they are endeavoring to do, right? This is why they massed forces in the north to prevent the, right. the, 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 uh, the, the re- reconstitution of a northern alliance against them. And this is why that they are marshalling now uh, to, to assault uh, major, major cities and take control of, of the government. So we ought to tr- we ought to make sure that doesn't happen, and then I'll tell you, Mark, we have to send a really strong, unambiguous message to Pakistan. Right? I mean, I mean, Pakistan has to stop supporting these groups, has to stop going after these groups only selectively, has to stop using them as terrorists as, as an arm of their foreign policy. Well, how do we do that? Well, Pakistan's greatest state sponsor is China. You know, China is actually engaged in a genocidal campaign against the Uyghurs. It seems like they're doing the best that they can do. To jumpstart, you know, a future, you know, major terrorist problem in their own country, China should have an interest uh, in Pakistan no longer supporting those groups. That's maybe something we can get at with China, but you know, who knows with China, right? China may want Pakistan as, a, as to be its, its, its uh, you know, it's a servile relationship with it, um, and uh, and 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 to dominate Pakistan and to just continue to keep Pakistan on life support financially and economically. But other states united arab emirates the Qataris and the saudis could make their assistance to pakistan contingent on them stopping to go after those groups then i think we have to prevent the worst from happening which would be a, you know a collapse in pakistan that would give jihadist terrorists the access to destructive, the most destructive weapons on earth and the other worst that could happen i think would be jihadist terrorists being able to initiate a cycle of sectarian violence in india right and and this cycle of violence would interact with Hindu nationalist policies, which are already creating a great deal of angst and anger in the Muslim communities in, in in India, so think about right. Think about the horror of the cycle of sectarian violence in the greater Middle East, and now think about that even in a small part of India. Well, anything that's small in India is big, right? And so, so I, I think stopping the spread of jihadist terrorism, trying to arrest the spread of it as it as it, it emanates out of the out of South Asia, this ecosystem. Um, this terrorist ecosystem uh, ought to be a top priority. And this involves a wide range of actions, as you know, involving, you know, intelligence sharing and law enforcement and financial actions. And so we have to redouble our efforts against jihadist terrorists more broadly, you know, because these groups are connected from South, South Asia, Southeast Asia, across South Asia, into the greater Middle East, into North Africa, into the G5 Sahel and the Horn of Africa, right? And and uh, and this this threat is is orders of magnitude greater than it has been in the past because they are better connected than ever. They're orders of magnitude larger. They are pursuing the, some of the most destructive weapons on earth. Uh, and and uh, and and you know, sadly, we s- seem to be wanting to disengage from these endless wars. Right? You just saw uh, that that we've reengaged in 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 Somalia against Al Shabaab, one of the most brutal terrorist organizations in the world, who also want to kill our children. Right? Uh, and 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 we did that after we said, we're okay, we're done there." Well, you know, we're not the ones who determine that we're done, right? As I mentioned, you know, this is not an endless war, it's an endless jihad against us.
0: So, and 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 maybe that's a good place to uh, for us to to wrap all of this up. So, you know, part of what we can count on then is that we're going to have to be engaged in South Asia, if not Afghanistan, uh, then elsewhere in trying to prevent the spread of those who would do so much harm to us so is that the challenge then going forward trying to figure out how we do that where we place yeah. our 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 investments investments in terms of intelligence assets and and other investments
1: right and, and then and and also to recognize that unless you're partnered with capable indigenous forces who have the human intelligence networks uh, to augment what you do with your know, surveillance and and other forms of remote uh, you know sensing and 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 uh, you know communications intelligence and so forth, you're not going to be effective, right? I mean, what, what does victory look like? What victory looks like is that jihadist terrorists are no longer able to advance their objectives through the use of violence against innocents. And the way to do that is to have them more worried about their own security than they are, are worried about what they're going to do to you right? And 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 the only way that we can do that in a sustainable way is not the U.S. doing that alone, obviously, but enabling others. That's what we were doing in Afghanistan. That's what we walked away from. That's what I'm, I'm afraid we're going to walk away from in, from in Iraq, right? So in Iraq, we said, okay, we're stopping our military o- operations against ISIS, right? But what we're going to do is we're going to allow the Iraqis to take the lead for that in, in Iraq. Hey, what if those Iraqi forces Are captured by Shia Islamist militias that don't have the trust and confidence of the Sunni Arab populations uh, in those portions of Iraq or the Kurdish populations. What that does is it allows Al Qaeda or or ISIS or the next version to come in and again portray themselves as as patrons and protectors of communities that fear evisceration at the hands of those forces. So oftentimes, if we're not involved, and and as you know, in Syria, for example, or, or in Iraq, in a very small way, right? Then then we're, we're not effective. And so I, I think it's generating the will, the will to sustain these efforts and communicating, obviously, as a way to sustain that will, the payoff and why it's important to our security. Hey, Mark, I, I think another lesson to learn here from 9-11, and I would say from COVID, is that challenges to our security that develop abroad can only be dealt with at an exorbitant cost once they reach our shores, right? And so- So that I think is the strongest and most important argument for remaining engaged with partners who are sharing the burden uh, against this jihadist terrorist threat.
0: So uh, General Petraeus, uh, in my interview with him, pointed out that two decades before he ever took his uh, his battlefield role in Afghanistan, he had written uh, for his doctoral dissertation uh, uh, an essay on Vietnam. And he said then uh, for a battle like Vietnam and thus a battle like Afghanistan, is not something we can win in the sense of having a final ceremony, raising the flag, and we say we're done, but it is something that we can manage. And his argument was that we were managing it. That in the yeah. footprint that we had, even at the beginning of this year with the reduced numbers, we were managing it and we were able to, uh, to uh, to offer to the Afghans, uh, police and security and others uh, enough support uh, to enable them to continue to develop. So it, it wasn't a, a victory celebration with a parade, yeah. but it was a managed success. Is that how you see it?
1: Yeah, I I would say that is winning, right? I guess, you know, <laughs> not the police, managed, but like, what is your definition of winning, right? Is your winning, okay, remember what you said up front from, from the Afghan study group, Right. We had met all three of those criteria and were sustaining those criteria over time. Now, we set an unrealistic objective, I think, in the minds of Americans, maybe, or maybe they had it in their minds, or maybe it was in the media. I don't know. But, but you know, the, kind of the narrative was, we, you know, we failed in Afghanistan, you know, because Afghanistan wasn't Denmark, right? Hey, you know, Afghanistan doesn't need to be Denmark. It just needs to be Afghanistan. Was it still a violent place? Heck yes. Was it still dependent on international support? Heck yes. But if you want to look at whether or not we were winning back then, look at what's happening in Afghanistan now. And was it worth it with that relatively small effort to prevent what's happening now? I would say the answer to that has to be, hell yes, it was.
0: H.R. McMaster, you've been very generous with your time. Uh, you're someone for whom this is uh, very personal including uh, your own kids serving in Afghanistan. Uh, thank you for your insights. We appreciate it very much to our audience. Uh, thanks for watching. This has been Hindsight Upfront. If you'd like to uh, get the podcast for this, please come to our website, as well as the first installment of this with uh, David Petraeus and Sir John Scarlett. Uh, we are doing our best to try to draw lessons, lessons that are upfront, lessons that are real time. HR, thank you for your time. Much appreciated.
1: Hey, thanks, Mark. Great to be with you. And thanks for the great work that the Wilson Center does.
0: We hope you have enjoyed this Wilson Center special event.
1: This has been a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Be sure to check out more of the Wilson Center's activities, media, and events at wilsoncenter.org.